You're listening to the Distinctive Christianity Podcast, where we seek to clarify distinctions between Mormon and Credo-Christian thought. I am Brendan, here again with... Skylar. Skylar. Hey, how's it going, man? Doing all right. What you been up to? We haven't haven't even caught up since we uh, met up about an hour ago. That's true. What'd Um, What'd you do this weekend? A lot of reading. Uh, dare I admit that, you know, a little NBA playoffs as well. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. NBA playoffs? Yeah. Is that happening right now? <laughs> uh, it is. Goodness. I, I watch more TV this time of year than the rest of the year combined times three. Because of the NBA playoffs? Just those games, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I didn't know that you were that into the NBA playoffs. More than Olympics, anything like that. Really? I think it's the best basketball in the world, for sure. Are you into the NBA or just the NBA playoffs? Um, well, I guess both, but more the playoffs. I didn't know that about you. You yeah. jazz fan or what? Well, yeah, they're not in it, but yeah, I am. I'm loyal even the when they're Ma- down. The Mavs aren't in it either, so I don't, yeah, man, I t- I do follow it enough to be very disappointed in the Dallas Mavericks. <laughs> I'll tell you that much, man. You have, I think, one of the three best players in the world. Ugh. And he didn't make the playoffs. Maybe it was that, yeah. And I mean, yeah. You you pick up Kyrie. Yep. And it's like we're gonna crush it, and then yeah. they just tank. It's I mean, bizarre. not even on purpose at first. It's like it's bizarre. They realize, wow, we really are terrible. So we might as well <laughs> lose on purpose. Oh. Yeah. <sighs> I don't know. Yep. Anything else? Just NBA reading. I'm always reading. reading. Reading on reading for the podcast. Reading for the podcast. Trying to do a little more reading not related to the podcast, though I feel like it's all connected in the end anyway. Yeah. But Yep. Yeah. Trying to get a break as well, yeah. occasionally. Yeah. Been way oversaturated. Yep. In in LDS Mormon thought. Mm. Trying to y- you've seen it. Get get the pressure pressure <laughs> valve. Yes. Unscrewed a little bit. Yeah. Let's, uh, let's some of that steam out. Uh-huh. You, you get to see it visually, how dysregulated yeah. I, I get, oh, yeah. you know, in the Easter episode or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's probably not healthy. So you passed out, what, like five times in that episode? <laughs> had to edit out the. Yeah. We, do yeah. CPR. And the, <laughs> they didn't, they had no idea. The listeners had no idea. You got through it. So <laughs> yeah. it's all good. Oh, if if you guys could know the things that we we edit out of this show. No, I'm, ju- I'm <laughs> just kidding. We don't edit at all. We actually don't edit at all. <laughs> yeah, not anymore. Anyway. Yeah. Do, um. What about you? It's the raw cut. Um. Yeah. I. Uh, not not much. I mean, it's just been pretty pretty normal. I'm trying to. It wasn't anything weird. Uh, I got to preach out of Ezra, Nehemiah 8, which I think is just a beautiful, beautiful passage this past Sunday. So that was fun prepping for. And uh, overall, it's just, it's just been a really sweet season at First Baptist Provo as well. Yeah. Just been uh, just a real spirit of unity. The fellowship on Sundays is amazing. Uh, the Lord's continuing to bring people into our doors and the buildings filling up. And we have a lot of, uh, I mean, seekers with us right now. People who are, some of them are, uh, you know, from LDS background, um, others not, but just people really engaged and interested and, 
and what we preach. And uh, yeah, so just a good weekend of, of worship. Yeah. So, yeah. That's awesome. I've been uh, running. Have you? Lately. Well, yeah, I've been I've been pretty consistently exercising, but this morning I went for a run outside for the first time in a while. And, uh, yeah, I just, you know, so we live not too far away from the Provo River Trail. Yes. So I just ran down there and was running next to the river. It's like, this is this is amazing. Yeah. I love that trail. Yeah. I, I would highly recommend you move to Provo, Utah, listener, yes. if you were not already. It's just an incredible city. So, yeah, so that was good. Just uh, jogging yeah. away and enjoying the views. It's so beautiful Watching today. the sun rise over the mountains. Yeah. Amazing. So great. So, yeah, that's that's been about it for me. That's awesome. All right. Well, let's see what we got here. We're going to be looking at... Or should we do a John, creed? Yeah, John 7 to 10, once once we get into it. And uh, the the title for this is I Am the Good Shepherd. And, <clears throat> yeah, we'll, we'll walk through that here in just a sec. But we do want to just try to be consistent. We're, we're not super consistent, but just to start off reading the creed. And I don't know that we've read the Nicene Creed yet. I think we may have once. I can't remember for sure, but we want to just read the Nicene, Nicene Creed for you this morning. Uh, so here you go. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten not made, of the same essence as the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven, He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, and was made human. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. The third day he rose again according to the scriptures. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. His kingdom will never end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. He proceeds from the Father and the Son. And with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified. He spoke through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We affirm one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look forward to the resurrection of the dead and to life in the world to come. Amen. All right, so as I mentioned, we're going to be looking at John 7 to 10 in the LDS Come Follow Me curriculum. And this is dated for the week's eight or for the week April 24th to April 30th. Uh, So if you are trying to follow along in real time, you'll know what we're looking at. Uh, But, of course, you don't need to be uh, on those dates in order to benefit from what we're talking about. So the title or the subtitle of this passage is I Am the Good Shepherd, which is kind of an interesting subtitle because it doesn't really capture the point of the lesson. Uh, much no, at all, so I don't know why. Cover I don't know why exactly. Yeah, I don't know really? why exactly they uh, <laughs> chose that. But hey, what can you do? Yeah. Um, okay, so yeah, starts just the normal way in the curriculum that we've been seeing. Uh, you know, you and your class members are going to gain insights 
Um, while reading John 7 to 10 this week, remember the ideas in this outline should supplement rather than replace the inspiration you receive by studying the scriptures. Can you, can you imagine that happening to even like, I don't know, Jason? I, oh, the Westminster Confession, it's meant to supplement. It's not meant to replace inspiration you individually receive yeah. by studying the scriptures. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's all about the individual. That's, yeah, it's really just, even that right there is such a, I don't know, it's yeah. very, um, and I want to be careful how I use the word, charismatic, lowercase c. Yeah, it is interesting. Yeah. Yeah. We, uh, like I said, we're going through Nehemiah 8, this past week and Nehemiah 8, I think is kind of the pinnacle passage of Ezra and Nehemiah. And it's because the city has been uh, mostly, you know, the walls have been rebuilt. The temple's been rebuilt. Now they just need to repopulate the city, rebuild the houses. But the whole point is there is a spiritual renewal and restoration happening among God's people. And after they finished the walls, Nehemiah and Ezra called the people back to the city uh, to, sit under the book of the law and it says they gathered together in in uh, the city next to the water gate as one man and so there's this powerful imagery of god's people coming together as one to sit under the reading of the scriptures uh it's yeah. really you know they're not coming to look for a new revelation no they're coming to do a bible a bible study i mean it's a it's a preaching conference truly yeah. and uh it's, a, it's just a beautiful passage so they they have the leaders get up and they just read the scripture and they give the sense of the text is what it says. So they read it and they explain it and they apply it. And uh, that's, just, that's what the church still does today. But we're not to see the primary aspects of our spiritual lives lived out by ourselves. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's not a, it's not that you as an individual and the things that you're experiencing on your own time are real, really what matters it, it's uh, no, it's God's people coming together under the scriptures and learning together, and uh, I mean, but you can see the fruit of this kind of thinking in the in the history of the LDS Church because where was it that Joseph Smith received the first vision? Apparently, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, it was by himself alone mm-hmm. in the woods, and that's where he got the the inspiration or the revelation, and uh, and yet the biblical Christianity we see is not. It's not that we would downgrade or belittle the importance of getting alone at times, but fundamentally the faith is lived out in unity with other believers sitting under God's scriptures, learning together. So totally, yeah, we believe total our side, no. Father. Yeah, our yeah. Father. That's right. And since it's already here in the, just even in the overview of this lesson in the seminary manual, they have this heading involving students. And they say, David Bednar, you know, our, our good friend on uh, Grace, mm-hmm. uh, of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, taught that, quote, our goal, so the goal of the manual, the goal of the curriculum, is to help students become spiritually self-reliant as we help them learn, or sorry, as we help them to learn by doing. Yeah. So isn't that interesting, that kind of combination of hyper-spiritual and hyper-pragmatic? Yep. There's no sense of being under the text involving the whole person, mind, improving our understanding of who God is and therefore who we claim Jesus is when we claim him as God. No, it's um, it's self-reliance, rely on your impressions, and then just get to work, get to work. Yep. It's, yeah. 
<laughs> oh man, so it's so different. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, we we have to give constant warnings, even in evangelical Christian circles, of not falling into the spirit spirit of the age. For sure, which is this uh, this elevating of the authentic self, right? Yeah. Um, so it's it's this is one of the fascinating things about that sort of language is it really is a religion of the modern era, right? To kind of have this focus on self and the way that it does. And we've talked about that on the podcast before, but yeah. anyways, just an interesting note. Okay. Um, and speaking of, by the way, right under the invite sharing, it says remind class members that the importance of making their homes, remind them about the importance of making their homes, the center of gospel learning. Uh, so, what we're doing here is not as important as what's happening in the home as you study the individual and family manual on your own time, essentially, or with your families. So, yeah. Um, okay, let's get into the, the Teach the Doctrine section. And we'll just go section by section and kind of make comments as we go along and uh, get to the end when we get there. So the first section is John 7 to 10. It's just kind of saying this is a general overview of the the section that they're wanting to look at. And the title of that subsection is Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world. Be curious what an LDS person even means when they say Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world. What what is he saving you from? Uh, Maybe death in some way, Uh, but... Unless I don't know. it's a natural process, I yeah. don't know. So it says, throughout John 7 to 10, the Savior made several declarations that can help class members better understand his mission and draw closer to him. Consider inviting class members to read the following scripture passages and share what they teach about the Savior's divine mission. How does Christ fulfill these roles in our lives? And then it lists really five different kind of titles or uh, references given to Jesus. Uh, and the first is John 7, 37 to 39. And that is that Jesus is the source of living water. Uh, why not just, why, why not we just read that? John 7, 37 to 39 says this. It says, on the last day of the feast... The great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. What's your initial take on that, Skylar? Um, I think... First, it's not about exegeting the passage at all. They, they're they really big on just finding a phrase and kind of doing with it what you feel is deep, I guess. And so, I mean, just even reading that, right? Um, he, he It's about believing in him. It's not being perfect like him and therefore receiving the same status that he has that his father did before. <laughs> it's believing in him and, of course, citing Isaiah as Scripture— Right, um, and it there's also this interesting insight in terms of the ministry of Jesus and the the work of the Spirit that we won't go into right now. But what about you? Yeah, I I think it's interesting the uh, uh, just looking at 
what one commentator has to say about this that I, f- I find pretty fascinating. But he, he writes, so all, all this, of course, is happening during the Feast of Tabernacles. And he says, the, the celebration of the Feast of Tabernacles in the time of Jesus likely included both a water-pouring ceremony and a lighting of candles. This background seems to inform Jesus' asserting himself as the source of living water and the light of the world. The Jewish texts describing the water-pouring ceremony at the Feast of Tabernacles do not comment on what it symbolized. It may have commemorated the Lord's provision of water from the rock for the people in the wilderness as they tabernacled their way to, to the Promised Land. If so, the water Jesus describes as flowing from himself in 738 would be a fulfillment of the water from the rock in the wilderness. The Lord stood before Moses on the rock when he struck it, Exodus 17.6, implying that Moses struck the Lord when he struck the rock. On the cross, the soldier struck Jesus, and blood and water flowed from him. Many interpreters have connected the water that flowed from Jesus on the cross from the water from the rock in the wilderness. All this likely informs Paul's statement in 1 Corinthians 10.14, they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. That's pretty fascinating. They yeah. think about it from that that perspective, but uh, yeah, there, there's a lot of uh, I think depth to be understood in what Jesus is saying when he says that uh, that there's there's going to be this this living water. Uh, water, of course, was the only way that there can be life. Uh, there's even been philosophers in the past who thought that uh, water was kind of the most essential element, if you will, that all things were made out of water. Um, and uh, so, babies, yeah. Yeah, so for uh, for Jesus to be saying, whoever believes in me, as the scripture said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. I think the idea there is there's going to be abundant life that comes into the heart and soul of anybody who is believing in Jesus. Um, it's going to fill them. It's going to satisfy them. And that, of course, is done by the work of the Spirit. Absolutely. Who's not yet come, but who will come at the day of Pentecost. And I think also just this backdrop of um, in Isaiah 55, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Mm-hmm. Without money, without price. Yeah. It's not earned. Yep. It's a gift. And, and the idea, of course, just even getting back to the wilderness, uh, you know, and some of that imagery is the the people are thirsty, right? The people are thirsting and are, are near death. And I think Jesus is applying that spiritually. Yeah. Right? You you are spiritually thirsty. And unless you come and, and receive the water that I give, you won't have life, right? right? Life is in me alone. And so it's not, again, it's just keep, uh, listener, keep seeing the patterns that are laid out in the Bible. We are not strong. We are not su- self-sufficient. We are not self-reliant. No. Uh, we need Jesus in order to have life in our souls. Mm-hmm. That's the only hope of it. Absolutely. And just even think about it. They include the source of living water. Mm-hmm. Do they really believe that? Yeah. I mean, we are monotheistic. We believe the one God who created everything out of nothing and into nothing took on flesh in the man Jesus. So we can say unabashedly, not only that he has truth, he is the truth. Mm -hmm. Not only that he is living water, but he is the source of living water. Whereas in their system of eternal progression and a eternal matter (laughs) source of living water, 
How could that be any one God? Yeah. Because they became God by a standard higher than themselves. Hmm. Yeah, that's that's. I don't interesting. think that, I don't think that's true even to themselves. Yeah, for sure. Okay, the second one is that Jesus is the light of the world. And this is referencing John 8, 12 and 9, 4 to 5. So John 8, 12 says again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And then in 9, 4 to 5, it says... We must work the, the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Okay, so a yeah. couple of references to Jesus being the light of the world. Mm-hmm. Initial reactions to that one. Well, I, I can't help but think of Isaiah, yeah. where this servant is going to be not just the light to Israel or the light of Israel, but to the whole world. Yep. And um, this is later on, not in this manual, but they're going to, you know, use John 10 and say, the other sheep, that's the Book of Mormon. It's like, well, there's only one problem with that. The Book of Mormon didn't happen. That, yeah. that, that's kind of... <laughs> yep. uh, but anyway, um, they, uh, still, the other sheep are, of course, no, no sense in their manual of the Jew-Gentile divide, yeah. that God chose a particular people, and that particular people then to the Jew first, right, and then to the Gentile. And so this servant will be a light to the world in Isaiah 42, Isaiah 49. And it's also associated with, of course, the role of the Messiah. Who is this prophet? That's a theme in even the last one in verse 47, 40 that they didn't include. But who's this prophet they're looking for? Yeah. The one like Moses in Deuteronomy. Yep. And again, we, we should also mention these are, are well known as the I am statements, many of these, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that there is a rich reference that Jesus is making, making the claim that he is Yahweh. He yes. is the God who delivered his people uh, out of Egypt. And so you could see some of the imagery even in, again, the Exodus in the pillar of light, right? The pillar of fire that guided the people out of Egypt. Jesus is going to be the means of salvation. He is providing the light and all who walk in the light will no mm-hmm. longer walk in the darkness. And yep. and they walk in the light by walking in him. Yep. Right, and uh, and then this, of course, culminates in this beautiful vision, even in Revelation, where it says, you know, the in, in the last day there won't be a need for the sun because we will the the light of Christ will fill all in all. Yes, um, right. So, and yeah, I can't explain what that means physically, no. <laughs> you know, uh, but you know, I think that there's a deeper spiritual meaning behind that, and and just that we will we who were once blind will see. Right, we. We who were once of the domain of darkness, are, who are brought into the kingdom of the beloved Son, will continue to see him as the light in the midst of the darkness. Right. And we'll see that perfectly in the last day when we see his face. Yes. And I, once again, just to question even what they mean, right? They, um, and I'll, I'll put the, you know, put it in the show notes, but when they talk about the light of Christ or the Holy Spirit being the power of the light in the sun and all that, remember that the distinction between Holy Ghost and Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is, is kind of this force in the universe, mm-hmm. right? And so the <laughs> it's not personal. It's I don't even think they have to, they interpret that as literally either because is he really the light or is he a great example of someone in tune with it, right? 
Um, whereas for us, there's nothing that exists apart from God. And we even see in Genesis 1, right? The light, the pre-create light, it's beyond the sun. So, you know, you have solar worship in the ancient world pretty prominently, right? Mm. Can link to agricultural cycles. And here, no, we say this man is the true light of the world, yeah. not the sun. Yep. And, and not even the light beyond it. It's good. If that makes sense, right? Yep. It's yep. <laughs> good. All right. The next one is the Son of God. Uh, <laughs> which a, I'm, I'm actually, our favorite. This yeah, is our favorite. I'm looking one. at John 9, 8 to 10. It says, John 9, 8 to 10. The neighbors and those who had seen him as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some says, Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but. Uh, he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, then how were your eyes opened? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to uh, Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? And I said, I do not know. <laughs> I, don't, okay. I don't know where that gets the son of God thing. It must be a typo. But anyways, in any case, they tell you that Jesus is seen to be the Son of God in this passage, which probably is from verse 35 to 38. But in any in any case, yeah. what, what do they mean by that? Well, the 35 to 38 is a little more interesting, actually. Yeah. So oh, yeah. Uh, Jesus heard and they um, said, do you believe in the Son of Man? Once again, they, um, the Son of Man in Daniel 7 is described in terms of, only used of the one God, Yahweh, mm-hmm. the Lord. Yeah, it's fascinating that they changed that, right? From, yeah. They changed the phraseology from what we see in the text, the Son of Man, mm-hmm. into the manual, the Son of God. Yes, and that's a huge difference because those are two distinct titles. Now, we do see them ultimately unified in the person of Jesus, right. but those are two different connotations. And it's interesting that in the Bible, the Son of God often has a human referent, right, in the king. And the Son of Man has a divine referent in somewhere like Daniel 7. I mean, think about it. Why do you have to say one like a Son of Man if God is a man? Yeah. Why do you have to say like a man mm-hmm. if that's an of course? Yeah. Because he's not. Yep. And that's why Daniel, one of the reasons Daniel is terrified in the vision. Yep. So, yeah. What do they mean? What do they mean? Uh, yeah. Jesus by is the that, son of they God. mean the embodied but. Gl- but exalted heavenly father came down and had physical relations with Mary, one of his wives and wives. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. I don't, I don't know how LDS are going to understand this because right. yeah. if you don't have polygamy, then heavenly mother is Mary, I guess. I don't know. Um, to ha- give Jesus a physical body. And that according to Brigham Young is all the organic difference between Jesus Christ and you and me. Yep. All right. Yeah. Very pretty, different. Pretty okay. <laughs> John 10, uh, 7 to 9, I am the door. So Jesus again said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Okay. That's pretty clear. Yeah. I think. Yeah, but do LDS people really believe Jesus is the door? I, well, I don't. Frankly, I don't even know what they mean by that. 
So, in well, I'm trying to think of how to say this in as like in terms of Mormonism as ecumenical way as possible. But the logic of Mormonism seems to demand that God can never be a limiting factor, but always encouraging growth and progression of his children, always, mm-hmm. right? Um, so, if, you know, he was a debate, even if Satan changed his mind, right? He could become more godlike or whatever, right? Um, so, by the door, I don't really, <laughs> I, in my mind, uh, it would be more consistent from the Mormon worldview to say he has opened doors and you can too. And if you think of it like in the temple, uh, maybe not a door, but a veil, mm-hmm. right? There's a series of veils you go through or a series of rooms you travel through in the older temples mm. uh, before there was like this, just this video or whatever. And they just changed the lighting in the room. You actually, the, the temple made more sense when you actually had to walk through the different rooms. And of course um, at the, the veil of the celestial room, you have to give the signs, tokens, words, the, and say it exactly right to a guide who's putting his hand through, who then can let you through. Yeah. Now, is that person Christ? No, they may try to say that's they're under the authority of Jesus or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but even then, you're like, wait, why not Heavenly Father? <laughs> like, wait, which, which, whose authority? Because... They want to emphasize everywhere Jesus is pointing to the Father as saying they're separate beings. So where's Jesus' actual authority in the temple? It seems like they're a little beyond that in their view. But no, I don't think he's a door. I think he's um, the example of how to get through the doors of the cosmos as you progress through exaltations to become like a Heavenly Father, the way he did. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and... uh... I, I this this is just a point on some of the stuff we hear a lot more from modern LDS people. These statements are very clear statements of the exclusivity of Christ. Uh, that there is no other way to be saved except through faith in Jesus. Um, Jesus is the only way to salvation. And some of the more modern stuff that we hear is very pluralistic. Yep. You know, just we're all going to get there in the end. Every religion has light. Every religion has yep. good things. And no religion has a monopoly on the truth. And so we're better off kind of listening to all of it. And then some some people, you know, get stuck in this. Uh, I, I, I've heard it described this way, and I think it's helpful. Uh, our Our current age is so pluralistic that many people just choose to become apathetic towards religion altogether. Mm-hmm. Uh, because liken it to being at a symphony where everyone is playing a different sheet of music, uh, and they're not on the same page, but they're all playing it as loudly and as boldly and as strongly and as proudly as they can. How long are you going to make it through that symphony when all of the people on their separate instruments are playing a different tune? Uh, you're not going to make it very long at all because it's just going to come across as the most loud, uh, you know, obtrusive, terrible noise. You're, you're going to want out of it. And I think in our day and age, that's what a lot of people experience religiously is uh, you get on social media, you get on Twitter, you hear the loudest voices, you hear the strongest, you know, people making their arguments. You hear the best looking. all these, yeah, the best Visual looking, media. all of, yeah. yeah, all of these 
opinions, thoughts, views, beliefs, and some people are just tempted. Like, I don't want to, I just don't want to deal with, I don't want to do the work to find out what's true. Right. I just want to turn it off. Uh, but other people just kind of back away into this. Well, it's all good, right? It's right. all, it all looks good. But Jesus is making exclusive claims here that if you want to be safe for eternity, uh, just like God's sheep are, you've got to be in the sheepfold where you will be protected and safe on the last day. And the only way into that sheepfold is through the door, through the gate. And Jesus is the gate. He is the door. And yep. so unless you go through him, you're not getting to safety. Uh, so these are exclusive claims yep. that salvation can only be found in the person and work of Jesus. Totally. Can I make a comment about that sure. as well? Where um, sometimes um, we see an extreme or a perceived extreme, and then we attribute that extreme framing to someone actually um, more in the middle. By that, I mean this. So many people will look at extreme Christians, like KJV onlyists or something like that, mm -hmm. that make everything a black and white issue. Yeah. Everything a black and white issue. And they respond by making everything gray because they think that's what's different. And they'll hear you and me when we say it is Christ alone. No ifs, ands, buts. He's not the privileged path, like Robert Barron said to, to uh, Ben Shapiro. Mm -hmm. it, you know, wow, Vatican II has made Rome pretty liberal. <laughs> it's, pretty, <Yeah. laughs> it's pretty wacky today. Um, privileged path. He says the only way. Uh, but they will hear us be totally black and white on that. And then think we're black and white on everything. Yeah. No, 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 no. See, the, the mindset of fundamentalism, and of course, that's a, one of these words where it's like, what do you mean by that? Right. Because from yeah. a certain perspective, I'm unabashedly one. Yep. But if by that they mean a group that treats drinking coffee on the same level as adultery mm -hmm. or treats your extreme loyalty to every word coming out of Nelson's mouth, even denying the Big Bang or whatever, on the same level as eternal progression. You see that mindset? No, no, no. We separate central, essential issues yeah. from adiaphora, issues that we can disagree, and there's no issue of fellowship on. Yeah, And good. so um, when they hear us making exclusive claims, they shouldn't strawman us and think we make everything an exclusive claim. Yeah, that's good. That's, that, that's a helpful distinction. Yeah. Okay, and then we get into the last one, which is Jesus is the Good Shepherd, John yes. 10, 11 to 14, which says, I am the Good Shepherd. The Good Shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is, who, he who is a hired hand is not a shepherd who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the Good Shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep who are not of this fold. Anyways, it keeps going. Yes, they, yes. they don't tell me to read all that, but man, it's all so good. I mm -hmm. just want to keep going. But in any case, I, I am the good shepherd. Uh, comment on that. Yeah, well, um, What do they mean by that? I mean, a lot of the emphasis in the Sunday School Manual is... They don't um, give very much teaching. No. Uh, and especially here. It's, you know, it, it would almost be really fascinating to be able to sit in and listen to 
what the conversation would be around these readings. Exactly. Yeah. And that's where David Ridges is a bit helpful because I can get an LDS Institute guy's commentary on every verse of the Bible. Yeah. That's really helpful. So I'm never, I, I at least have a basis for anything I'm saying when I'm critiquing. But I mean, a lot of it, like this, this quote from the manual, if I follow the good shepherd, I will receive dot, dot, dot. I guess we fill in the blank. Mm -hmm. And it's about experiences. Um, yeah, a lot of it seemed to be, you know, we choose the shepherd rather than, right? Remember, Jesus is chosen as leader. That's the gospel principles right, heading right. on it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, so much of it is what we choose. Uh, I thought, I know we're not supposed to quote Bruce R. McConkie ever again. And by the way, even in the manual, when they quote him, they quote the manual that quotes him. Yeah. They won't directly quote Bruce R., but he says this on the, my sheep hear my voice. This is literally what he says. Uh, people are chosen to become Christ's sheep in the preexistence because of their preexistent training, election, and foreordination. That's a little bit different. For us, we let the metaphor be the metaphor. Shepherd chooses his sheep. It's a shepherd, and it's not. It's about his choice. This, this is a, this his is work. A, yeah, this is a creator creation distinction that's yes. going on here. Uh, we are the sheep. He is the shepherd. Yeah. <laughs> he protects us. He guards us. Yeah. He. It ensures that we are kept safe because we can't keep ourselves safe. Totally. Yeah. I almost get the sense that they use the metaphor to be like, he's your workout trainer. You yeah. know, he's your elder brother that's giving you the good advice to, you know, make varsity next year. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Well, there's your five. So then we get into the second subsection, which is John 7, covering John 7, 7 to, or 7, 14 to 17. And uh, I, I, man, I am tempted to just, Almost like we need to read this whole section in yeah. order to have the context. Do it. But this is consistently a issue that we see going on, right, is they will single out two or three verses. They'll strip them out of the context, and they'll expect you to draw out the meaning that they want you to get from it or whatever meaning. Or you what you want to draw get from out it. Yourself. Yeah, from a phrase. Uh, yep. Yeah, just from, from a couple of verses yeah. without looking at what's going on in the bigger picture here, which is a big problem in Huge interpretation. Issue. But uh, before we get into, into it, let me just read the LDS take on this. As we live the teachings of Jesus Christ, we will come to know that they are true. So as we live them, we have to live these teachings. And as we live them, that's when we come to know that they are true. So this really is kind of a, you know, get 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 your feet wet and, and then you'll know that it feels good and almost like, you know, start living it, mm -hmm. you know, fake it till you make it yep. sort of a thing. Don't, don't think about it. Do it. Yeah, that's then right. Then you'll get a testimony, which they will say is true. Yep. Uh, so they give this consistent uh, imagery of practice, 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 right? In, in some ways, gaining a testimony is like learning a skill. Both require practice and experience. To illustrate this, you could invite class members who have a particular skill, such as juggling or playing a musical instrument, to explain how they develop their skill. Why isn't it enough to read about the skill or to watch someone else perform it? You see how it's already bent in this workspace direction, right? Uh, it's not enough to just read about it. That's what the Baptist will tell you to do. Yeah. It's not enough to watch someone else perform it. You can't just watch Jesus perform it. No. You've got to do it, yep. right? No um, sense of the active 
the passive obedience of that's Jesus. That's right. Uh, it's all focused on what you do. Yep. As, again, we always see this. As a class, discuss how the effort involved in practicing a skill is similar to the spiritual pattern the Savior described in John 7, 7 to 4, or seven fourteen to 17. How is it different? Perhaps class members could share experiences in which living a gospel truth helped them gain a testimony of it. And then they're supposed to give uh, gospel principles that they would like to gain um, that will help them gain a stronger testimony. Right. So anyways. By uh, living it by living more faithfully. It, right. In the Sunday School Manual, they they quote um, President, which is interesting, they're calling her president now. It's interesting to see these little shifts in how they talk about mm -hmm. uh, female leaders in the church. Um, Bonnie L. Oscarson, and this is how they describe her, quote, her obedience to the word of wisdom allowed the Holy Ghost to confirm to her the truth of that gospel principle. And in the actual quote, they they keep they say this same pattern applies to all the principles of the gospel, right? So um, now throw this in. First off, I I, I want to go on a deep dive on DNC eighty nine, the Word of Wisdom, which says early on, not by commandment, not by commandment nor constraint. So it's not even a commandment that they pick. Certainly not a biblical one. But listen to this. Choose one of the Lord's teachings which you would like a, uh, of which you would like a stronger testimony. The Lord's teachings. For some of his teachings, you could look up talks addressed to youth in a recent general conference or in the Strength of Youth Guide. See how they're equating what they say with what Jesus says? Mm -hmm. Like, not only do they not, they don't even put it on par, right? When Jesus actually speaks, you look for phrases that you can twist to mean whatever you feel is true. Yeah. But when it comes to what how you actually live, by which you get the testimony they want you to have internally, even bypassing the mind, you look at talks addressed to the youth. Right. In a recent general conference, what they say. Yeah. Or in some manual they approved. Yep. So again, it, it never allows the text of Scripture to speak for itself. Yep. It's always bent towards telling you what you ought to think and then cherry-picking a verse or two in order to strengthen their own worldview. Right. And when it's their leaders, do they say just look for phrases? Yeah. Look how low of you the Bible. Yep. When it's the Bible, which is actual Scripture, which Jesus in the 7 to 10 section that they're covering says Scripture cannot be broken. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Um, look for cute phrases. When it's theirs, I'm sure they want it in context and exactly how they want you to live it. Yeah. So here is the verse that they're trying to draw out these ideas from. Well, yeah. no, I should say well, it this way. Here's the verse that they are trying to eisegete these ideas into. Yeah, there you go. Uh, so verse, well put. Yeah, verse 17, well put. if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. Okay, so that's what they want to try to draw out that one verse and say, well, this is showing us that if if your will, if if you do, well, yeah, they don't even say if anyone's will is do this. If you do God's will, then you will know that the that the teaching is coming from God. Right. So by which the, they mean obedience the to their do, rules. Do yeah. first, do yep. the law, do the yep. commandments, and then you will know. Okay. Um, 
Now let's look at the greater context of what's going on here, just to see if that's really what uh, this is teaching us. Okay, so John 7, after this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths, stop me at any point if you want to make comments, Scott. Okay. Okay. Uh, now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brother said to him, leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. So here's what's going on now. Jesus is already in heat with the Jews. The Jews hate him. The Jews want to see him dead. He has some brothers who are here, and they say, hey, why don't you go on up there and just keep doing some of your really awesome miracles? That way you'll attract a bunch of people to you, gain a crowd, gain a following, gain uh, you know, lots of uh, Twitter fans or whatever you want to call them. And as you do that, people will appreciate the work that you're doing, and maybe your life won't be in danger anymore. For no one works in secret if he sees to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. You see what his brothers are telling him, right? Go after your glory. Like, go go become famous. Go become awesome. Go, you know, show how amazing you are to the world. Sounds like a modern anthem, doesn't it? For not, this is verse 5, for not even his brothers believed in him. So they don't believe in him. In other words, they don't believe that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. They don't believe uh, that uh, that he is the Messiah. They just think, he, oh, he's got some miracle powers, right? Like, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so, so they don't get it, but they still want him to take advantage of the things that he is doing in order to get famous. Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it, that, that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to the feast for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. In other words, I'm not going to go up with you guys. You guys probably just want to get a following by being around me and trying to, you know, live off of my miracle works. So y'all, y'all go you know, seek after your own self-glory if you want, whatever. That's not what I'm doing right now. And I think that Jesus is saying, the time for my glory is coming. You, you better believe that it's coming, but that time has not yet come. And and Jesus can say that, by the way, in a way that no human right. should ever say. God says, I share my glory with no one. That's right. But after, this is verse 10, after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up. So he did go up, but not with his brothers. Not publicly, it says, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? Of course, because they want to kill him, right? And there was so much muttering about him among the people. While some said he is a good man, others said, no, he's leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly about him. Okay, you get the context now? This is the context of what's going on here. So now, now we can look at the verses that they reference for us to look at, knowing a little bit of the situation. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. Okay, so he he does get up and he starts teaching. He starts preaching the gospel of the kingdom. The Jews, therefore, marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, He will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. 
the one okay so that that's where they stop right but let's let's look at verse 18 because this, this all of this is so critical to understanding what Jesus is saying verse 18 the one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory sounds familiar yep but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true and in him there is no falsehood has not Moses given you the law yet none of you keeps the law why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Uh, that's probably referring back to his work of healing on the Sabbath when the Jews got ticked off at him back in John 5. Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. All right, Skylar, what do you want to what do you want to comment on here? There, there's a, quite a bit. Yeah. Um, of course, they're they're turning it into obedience to teachings that they teach ethically. Um, in their Sunday, or sorry, seminary manual, they talk yeah. about this. Story. So they they focus on this quite a bit in the seminary manual. This yes, week. like you, you two two it. full days on yep. this little thing. So yeah, yeah, you live it, then you'll know it. Yep. And if you're questioning, only go to divinely appointed sources. Yeah. Don't listen to podcasts like ours. Um, go to divinely. They used to say church approved materials right. or sources. Now it's divinely appointed. Yeah. Um, and they also make a broader epistemological point, which we have covered um, already, but. Uh, They say this, during the Feast of Tabernacles in Jerusalem, Jesus explained how anyone could know for themselves, see that? Know for themselves that the doctrine he taught was from Heavenly Father. Uh, This lesson will help you discover what you can do to know the truth of Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ's teachings. Of course, two different gods. So notice, uh, for us, Jesus is the truth. And so any knowledge of him is from him. It's dependent. That's right. Our, our, when we claim he's the truth, and that to the degree to which we understand or even know that truth is an act of complete dependence upon the one God as incarnated in the man Jesus. Yep. For them, a uh, very different story as we have already covered. Um, now, what is actually going on here? Um, now, I think this, they, of course, miss two of the emphases. Um, you already covered the verse they skip that talks about, oh, if you talk on your own, you know, authority for your own glory, uh, that sounds familiar. I'm pretty sure that happens at least every six months here in Salt Lake City uh, from a bunch of people that claim to be prophets and apostles speaking on their own authority for their own glory. In fact, isn't that, uh, according to Mormon uh, scripture, of course, keep in mind what they mean by scripture, um, right? It says, this is, Apparently, God's work and glory to bring to pass the immortality, eternal life of man. So, God's glory is the, you know, glorification of man in Mormon thought. For for us, very different. Yep. Um, now, I think the point is they're questioning his credentials, mm-hmm. and right. a grammatoi does not mean uh, illiterate. Uh, that we got to get that out of the way. Yeah. It just means not formally schooled. He doesn't have the credentials you would think 
from someone who has this understanding, let alone the other claims he's making. Yeah, because in, in rabbinic studies, of course, it would have been really important who did you study under, which is no right. different from today. Sure. You know, you go, get, you go get your credentials, you go get a PhD. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's there's ceaseless competition because even if you have a PhD, people are going to start to ask, where did you Where'd get you it? Where did you get it? Right? Who did you yep. study under? Yep. And um, it's not that that's entirely dumb. That's the point is yeah. that uh, Jesus, his credential is as the God. It matters where you get your teaching from. It, yes. Yeah. And and Jesus he, is saying, I get my teaching from the highest authority. Right. You know, which also frames how how important it is when you quote scripture. He is willing to cite scripture. He doesn't cite uh, like you know rabbinic scholars will often do, or what we do when we cite church fathers or whatever, uh, just to show we're not making this up. You know, Augustine saw it the same way or whatever. Right. Um, rabbis will say, like Rabbi Akiva or whoever, right? But Jesus doesn't. He speaks on his own authority or quotes scripture, which, if it's God's word, also is his authority. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, just keeping in mind, in this monotheistic worldview, truth must ultimately be self-authenticating. So they make it about the content and then shift the content to what they teach. We're focusing on the authority of Jesus and what this means about the relationship, which is way more than just will, uh, between the Father and the Son, and what that means about his teachings. Um, Whereas they treat it like obedience, for um, us, it's way more about a willingness to do his will, right? It's about will more than ethical obedience. I like how D.A. Carson points this out. Um, he says, the point is not that a seeker must attain a certain God-approved level of ethical achievement before venturing an assessment as to whether or not Jesus' teaching comes from God, but that a seeker must be fundamentally committed to doing God's will, which, what was the work of God in John 6? To believe in Christ. Mm-hmm. What is the work of God in Mark 3? To be around Jesus. Right. So, yeah, so in context, what does it mean to do the will of it's God? It's a faith commitment. That's right. It it's is. a faith commitment to, to trust, trust rel- holy yep. on the God-man, Jesus. Yep. And I think, given that we see this in verse 18, to be fully devoted not to your own glory, yep. but to the glory of the one whom God has sent. Exactly. Or, you know, Jesus even. Yes, uh, because his glory. The Father's glory. Yes, right. and his glory, which, of course, in Isaiah 42, I believe it is. I'll fix it in the show notes if I'm getting that wrong. But I think it's Isaiah 42 is one example where God says, I do not share my glory with anyone. But Jesus shares glory with the Father. Yeah. There's only one God. In fact, I and my Father are one. Jesus has glory. And we're going to see it on the cross and the resurrection. The Father has glory. Nobody questions that. Maybe they're one God. Interesting. Yep. Um, so it, it's it's so funny that it then shifts from the content of his teachings to the point, which is the glory of God. Yeah, <laughs> that's I, the yeah. that's the point. Not self reliance, Christ reliance, God yeah. reliance. Everything be to the glory of God. Yeah. It, and by the way, th- this is just such an, an another very neat point to make on the Trinity. Um, one of the things that distinguishes the the Trinity. Uh, who is, of course, the one true God, the God of the Bible, from other uh, kind of absolute singular gods. Yeah, unitarian monotheism. Yeah, is is that Jesus really does care about the glory of the Father. There's a sharing of the glory. And so you can't paint the the you can't paint Yahweh, the, the Trinitarian God, as being narcissistic yeah. um in, in the way that 
there will often be accusations. Well, what kind of God would only care about his own glory? Well, within the Trinity, there is a there is a, a sharing, you know, of the glory. Eternal sharing. That's yep. right, an eternal sharing of the glory. Mm-hmm. And so uh, Jesus is not, in that sense, being selfish in the way that we would often define being selfish um, in our human way of thinking. Uh, you know, he, he is being giving and wanting to give glory to the Father, even as the Father will give glory to him, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. And there's just so many themes of... Um, Yes, John distinguishes the Father and the Son. You know, yes, we distinguish the Father and the Son. Yep. <laughs> you know, we are not modalists and we're not, you know, tritheists. Yeah. We're Trinitarian monotheists, right? And so the manual will say Jesus clearly teaches he's, you know, a separate being from the Father. No, he does not. Mm-hmm. When he claims to be Yahweh, he's claiming to be the one God. And there is only, not the first God. And whatever nuance you want to put on the word one, it cannot mean infinite gods and all people have infinite potential to become them. Yep. What, it, whatever one means, it cannot mean its opposite. Yeah. So, again, just taking us back to verse 17, if anyone's yes. will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. Yeah. That's a rebuke uh, towards <laughs> the these religious leaders who don't truly want to do the will of God. They want to just seek after their own glory. Um, they don't, they don't want to truly submit themselves to the, the teaching of Jesus and, uh, and humbly seek to learn. And, uh, you know, they want to preserve their own power. They want to preserve mm-hmm. their own status. They want, to, they want to preserve the status quo as it had developed in rabbinic tradition uh, to say, well, this guy didn't have even the right to be speaking. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, he's not he's not educated. Uh, wh- wh- what right does he have, right? And so there's a desire within these Pharisees to seek after self-glory, to consider s- themselves as better. And so their hearts, their minds are not open to receive the teaching of Jesus. Yeah. Um, and so that's the calling that's being made here. Jesus is saying, if if you come with a, with a humble heart, you know, with, with a desire to to sit at my feet, just like uh, just like Mary did, choose the better portion. Sit at my feet. Listen to me. I you will be taught. You will be taught the glorious truth of who God is. You will be shown His glory. Yes, and keep in mind there is a messianic expectation at this time. Yeah. Jesus did see. Were they more committed to the promised prophet, to the promised Messiah, to the promised King? Or were they committed to their idea of what the Messiah should be? Yeah. And Jesus didn't fit that. Yep. And so what are they looking for? They're looking for anything to undermine the validity of his teaching. They're not dealing with the teaching. They're dealing with, well, you don't have the credentials that obviously the Messiah would have, right? Yeah. Whatever. Yep. And um, so what that turns into is if the claims Jesus make of himself are true— to avoid those claims, what is left but the self? Mm-hmm. What is left but the state yep. or whatever else, yep. right? The three idols of all time, including ours, right? State, self, sex. Yep. Um, so, you know, I, I think that's something that's going on here that's setting up the, the theme of glory. Um, I like that Richard Bauckham points out that in, in chapter 7, um, you know, one of the things underneath this kind of subtle debate going on is whether... Jesus is the prophet, uh, 
prophesied to come by Moses in Deuteronomy 18, or is he a deceiving prophet like Deuteronomy 13 and 18, mm. uh, 20 through 22. Um, so I, yes. Um, really quickly to finish D.A. Carson's point, um, that, you know, once again, that the truth that we believe is Jesus uh, is self-authenticating. This is not a vicious circularity, right? If he is the one God, what higher standard could you appeal to? Yep. Um, certainly not something like uh, human experience. Um, and he does point out that, you know, Jesus does give evidence, right? Um, John ten thirty eight. But I like this. But in the sense that finite and fallen human beings cannot set themselves up on some sure ground outside the truth and thus gain the vantage uh, from which they may assess it. Divine revelation can only be assessed, as it were, from the inside. From that perspective, the person who chooses to do God's will, of course, in the context of who grants the will to believe, John 6, discovers that Jesus' teaching articulates it and that Jesus does not speak on his own, but as the word of God. I think Carson puts that so well. Yep, as always. Yes. All right, let's go ahead and move just to the last section. Well, there's two more sections, but we'll just talk talk through one more briefly. But this is covering John 8, verses 1 to 11. And this is one of the most famous stories in the Bible, which is so ironic, as we're going to talk about here in just a minute. But this is a story of the woman caught in adultery. And of course, if you don't know the story, uh, the the long of short of it is that there's these scribes and Pharisees who bring this woman to Jesus who's been caught in adultery. They place her before him and they say, teacher, this woman's been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law of Moses, it commands us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? And they said, of course, that to test him. And Jesus famously says, he who is without sin casts the first stone, right? That's basically the story. And then uh, he stood up and he said, they, they all leave because they realize they're not without sin. Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on, sin no more. Okay, famous story. And the uh, the subtitle here in the LDS curriculum is The Savior's Mercy is Extended to All Who Repent. Okay. Now, Scott, I'm going to throw this over to you, but I do just, uh, obviously, we don't have time to cover all of this carefully today, but uh, we do want to make some just important notes on the text here um, that could surprise some evangelical Christian listeners. I don't know but there's still good points to make up against the way that the LDS people have chosen to deal with this passage. Uh, it's surprising that out of all that they could have drawn attention to in John 8, they choose this passage. Why is mm-hmm. that? Well, I, for, for a religion that has emphasized the unreliability of the Bible, right, under the rubric of translation, by which they often mean transmission, um, and, I mean, they were Barterman long before Barterman, right? Um, I, there's there's LDS conference talks where they talk about, we just have copies of copies of copies of copies. Oh, yeah. They were some of the first to say, well, the Gnostic texts are just as reliable. Why don't we have the Book of Adam and whatever? Yep. All that kind of stuff that we hear all the time in Da Vinci Code culture. Yep. Um, and yet, not a word on this passage. Now, I think to... to why, why would that matter? Well, because... Because we haven't said anything about this passage yet, so... Yes, well, um, John, this... Almost all are agreed John did not write this passage. Yep. And um, so this becomes an issue of um, 
textual criticism, but also of canon. Yeah. Right. So just just to be maybe more clear for some of those who are like, I've never heard this before in my life. Many, almost all scholars have agreed that this passage was an addition into the canon, as far as we can tell, probably somewhere around 300 AD or after is when this entered in. Um, at least that would be the consensus. And so this is one of the passages in the Bible. If you have an ESV, you'll actually see they put it in double brackets. And the reason they put it into double brackets is to make it clear that that the most reliable manuscripts, the earliest manuscripts, none of them include this passage. And so this is one of the few passages in the Bible that we would look at and say, perhaps this shouldn't be in our Bibles. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so this is an interesting thought experiment of it may be historical, yep. but John didn't write it, so is it Scripture? Um, and part, part of why it's... And by the way, this is not new. This might be new to some listeners, but it's not. And, and this is why you should care about it, even if it sounds shocking to you, is because this is where the Bart Ehrmans of the world are going to aim. Yep. This is where they're going to aim. Because they'll say all scholars agree this isn't, and yet you hear it, and you see it in every video. Should there really be videos? See pictures of it. Should there be pictures of Jesus? We'll get to that some eventually. But part of why it's um, so, it doesn't have the style of John. It's not in the earliest manuscripts. And even in the manuscripts that we have it in, it shifts places. So some have it in different places of the Gospel of John, including in uh, after John 21, 25. Um, and then we actually have a set of manuscripts that have it in Luke. Mm-hmm. And Luke didn't write this either. Yep. So the, the, the reason it probably ended up here um, is because of uh, 8.15, I judge no one. And this might have been seen as a free-floating story that exemplified that teaching, right? Um, uh, I, I, I think, you know, now keep in mind, a lot of early church fathers saw this. So Augustine, who preached this passage several times, uh, mentions uh, that this is not in every copy he knew of. Yep. So this isn't new. It might not get enough attention as it should. Um, but here's here's why it matters. The church that's going to point to us and say, um, it changes, 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 changes. That's why we need experience and modern prophets and Joseph Smith. Um, not a word about this. Yeah. And here's the thing. They become the parody of what Bart Ehrman is aiming at. And, and so when Bart Ehrman says, yeah, come on, you keep this in even though it's not original, how seriously do you take Scripture? Yeah. Well, you know, the, among at least the pastors I've talked to, I haven't found anyone that didn't know about this. It's in the ESV, so that it's not hidden, right? And um, so I just think it's a huge difference of how the treatment of Scripture. Yeah. Um, another thing is they emphasize in the manual uh, not only do they run from the theology, which we won't have time to get into, but, um, you know, it's about second chances, and he didn't forgive her right there. He certainly didn't justify her right there. Gave her time to reform her life and all that, which that's not what the passage even teaches. But um, it, it, they emphasize a J- Joseph Smith translation verse where Joseph Smith added a verse to this story. So did he? F- why didn't he reveal about this? Um, and why did he add a verse to a passage right. in John that wasn't original to John? <laughs> Probably because he's not a prophet. Uh, yeah. That's just my guess. Yep. Um, uh, so anyway, I, I think um, it's, it's once again, um, it's an early story, um, but it's not original to John. Yeah. And so I, I do like this. Um, one scholar puts it this way. Um, it's after explaining a lot of what we just 
talked about. It's succinct, this story's succinct expression of the mercy of Jesus is as delicate as anything in Luke. Its portrayal of Jesus as the serene judge has all the majesty that we would expect from John. Mm-hmm. So, you know, this isn't, uh, you know, freak out kind of thing. It's just, it's it, what is the goal of textual criticism? Is to get what the apostles originally wrote. That's right. And the question is, do we have the courage to acknowledge what we can learn from that? Yep. Now, here's one thing that most won't point out that's really important. Even the Bart Ehrmans of the world, they want to do what Mormons do in the sense that they want to say things were taken out of the Bible. Mm-hmm. Things were taken out. So things are missing. Yep. And yet the two biggest examples of changes to the original text that they point to are not things taken out, yeah. but things added to. This is John 8 and the, and the ending longer of Mark. ending of Mark. Yep. Right. And um, and so yeah. that, that should give us confidence. We have, too much. We have, we have too, too much evidence. Not not exactly. Yeah. No, that's really key to see. Right, and and that's why a lot of uh, more modern translations um, are shorter. Yep. Right, because there was a tendency to harmonize. There's a tendency. It's called expansion of piety. Yeah. If they saw titles of Jesus, they would add more. Yep. And we see this in the evidence in the manuscript tradition generally, mm-hmm. and that's a good thing. Yeah. That that makes the text more reliable, yep. Yep. not less. Yeah. Um, now, now, and you've said this in passing, but. It's important for listeners to know that there there's a good chance that this is a historical story sure. that actually occurred with Jesus. Yep. Um, but when we are talking about the scripture, as you said, we're we're not just trying to find any and every historical story, uh, regardless of what the source of that is, and call that potentially scripture. Mm-hmm. The goal is to get down to what were the original manuscripts that mm-hmm. were written by the apostles that were affirmed by the early church and and passed along through the generations preserved for us to know this is the word of God. Um, yep. So so you can read this story and you can realize this probably, I mean, there's a good likelihood that this story occurred and that sure. it was passed on in verbal traditions with the church written mm-hmm. down in various places and then got included by somebody at some point in time. And the story is consistent with the character and with the teaching of Jesus. And so if anybody has ever looked at this story and they liked the story, you can like it as a historical example, but then you do get to the question of, well, can we teach this and preach this as Scripture? Right. And that's where you start to get into more debates within Protestantism. Sure. Yeah, and think of the the books of Maccabees, right? They're yeah. historical, but we don't treat them as inspired. Yep. So they're useful, but not as inspired. And, of course, Christian pastors are going to be divided on whether they would preach this. Um and and that makes sense, right? Yeah. Um, and even Augustine, who who can uh, who would not like his sermon where he did the relicti sunt duo misera uh, et misericordia? Though two were left, right? Uh, misery and mercy. She in the misery of her sin, and he in the glory of his mercy. I mean, it's beautiful, right? But um, I just think I want really the example is useful to because you would think the LDS Church would aim here, right? You would think they would aim here, but they don't. And in fact, in their history, have been prone to even conspiracy theories among the general authorities about modern translations. Mm-hmm. Um, right? So, I mean, not, not even kidding. Like the, in the October 1952 Church News, right? The Latter-day Saints, there can only be what, one version of the Bible officially used in the church. Right? Joseph Fielding Smith um, totally attacked Bible scholarship. 
Yeah. Um, we would we would disagree with a lot of Bible scholarship, right? Yeah. But no, we see it as useful because we want to know what John wrote. That's right. That's what that's the goal. The goal is not what we want him to have written. Yep. And um, and so you know, they um, when the RSV came out, which this was a huge thing in the 1950s, just culturally among evangelicals. This isn't just LDS. But J. Reuben Clark, right, he was in the church's first presidency, I think three first presidencies, right? He um, got into conspiracy theories about it and thought it was a, you know, um, totally resisted and and basically created this kind of weird de facto KJV-onlyism, but of the LDS stripe um, that they haven't really moved off of um, since. Um and I don't know if anyone's encountered that, but that's still out there. Yeah. Um, but we <laughs> we do not have that view um, yeah. at all. Yep. So I asked my pastor, uh, "Do when you preach through John, and he has been. And by the way, he spent probably a year just in these chapters for this week yep. to show how much depth you we should be, <laughs> uh, what they should be doing with this, uh, but don't. Mm-hmm. Um, I said, do you preach this passage? Well, he says he does bring up the issues with it but he chooses to because it's been preached out of john for a long time and he so he kind of defers to the tradition there yep um but i know others would disagree yeah and i do think um last point i'll make uh it is interesting that i do think um protestantism has the tools available to it to deal with this theologically a little better than rome and a little better than the east yeah. Because even though we can see it, it originated as a Greek text, but in the Latin West, it entered the liturgies earlier. By the way, there's a little exception in Egypt that's really fascinating. But um, if they define a certain, like the Latin Vulgate or something like that, as the translation of the church, and it's in there, how do you deal with modern scholarship, even when it's coming from a Catholic scholar like Raymond Brown? Whereas for us, we have the tools to be able to handle that yeah um i think way more adequately the east has a similar problem but yeah but anyway yep. uh once again we are not cowards uh barterman may be aiming at a church like lds and that likes his stuff um but he's not aiming at yeah. pastors like mine or or you yeah we we don't get flustered about this kind of stuff no so and and there's no need to yeah uh, because is this the only passage he forgives sins in yeah exactly no <laughs> <laughs> you know yeah, there's no threat to the the meaning, the message, the words of, of Scripture um, because our textual criticism is helping us get closer and closer to the original manuscripts. Um, you know, we, we would actually celebrate the process that's gone on as we're able to compile all this data and put these things into computers and, and figure out where are the variants, where are the things that are less accurate because it helps us to, to boil it down and to see our Bibles actually getting more and more accurate to that, uh, that original perfect, uh, perfect, uh, autograph. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so, uh, it, it, you know, for us, it, it's good that we can see these brackets around yeah. these words. It's not hidden, and not hidden in a vault. That's right. It's right here for those who just even look at the footnotes. Yep. Absolutely. All right. That's good stuff. Um, again, uh, we appreciate y'all listening today. Any last words, Skylar? Um, I would just say where they end the lesson manual on live worthy of the Spirit's guidance, um, we would say trust just read Christ. That. Read that, by the way. Okay. 
it says, live worthy of the Spirit's guidance. When you live the gospel, you are worthy of the companionship of the Spirit. <laughs> As you seek his guidance, he will give you thoughts and impressions about how to meet the needs of those you teach. Now, live the gospel, huh? Mm. Who's the one person who could? Yeah. Would be Jesus Christ, right? The gospel's news about what he has done, not what we do. And notice, not only do they not make that distinction, they say, you live the gospel, and when you're worthy, you'll get the companionship of the Spirit, which they distinguish from the Holy Ghost, even though in the Greek it's the same word. Yep. Third person of the Holy Trinity, right? Yep. So we would say, you know what? Live worthy of the Spirit's guidance. No. The Spirit in our sin, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Yep. Right? And... He transforms us. He leaves the 99 to get the one. Yep. He, does, he doesn't just wait for the sheep to choose him. Yep. He goes out, chooses his sheep. The Father draws by the Spirit to the Son. He saves us in our sin. And then, in relationship with him, where we trust wholly upon him, epistemologically, spiritually, emotionally, physically, then, slowly, he will transform us and save us from our sin. Hitting that button. It's a good, good way to end. Thank you for listening. Please like, subscribe, share the show. Let us know what you're thinking. We appreciate you listening. We'll see you next time.